From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, special virtual edition we've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic in mid-March. We've got the whole crew here via Zoom. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and this is Cade Massey. We do this every week. We talk sports analytics for an hour. Our tradition since March has been to talk pandemic analytics in the first half hour as important context for sports. Also, lots of interesting analytics to make sense of. Uh, the whole world is trying to make, it, make sense of the coronavirus and has been for some time. We do that for the first 20 or 25 minutes and then jump over and talk sports. Gentlemen, good to see you. Always glad to be here. How are things for you on this Tuesday afternoon? Doing well. Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. I've had to move on. Well, to, this is the first uh, day in a while, daytime in a while without basketball, but I've got the Western and Southern tennis open on in the background. So at least I still have something to keep me amused. I just came back from New York, Cade, where things are still under pretty serious lockdown. Yeah, it feels different there. It does. I mean, you know, honestly, Center City, Philadelphia feels quite different too. A weekday in Center City, Philadelphia, parking is a breeze, man. I mean, mm-hmm. you just cruise through there. There's, it's sad though. There's nothing going on. Businesses are hurting. Um, it's just a different deal in this part of the country. Um, what, what around the world of pandemic coronavirus has caught your eye in the last week, guys? Well, well, there, there seemed to be a, a statistics kerfuffle that I don't know if anyone uh, uh, yeah, was, was couldn't miss that one. The, the, it's great when, when an actual interpretation of a statistics event becomes news. Um, so the FDA announced that it was approving the, uh, the plasma treatment. Um, and as many of these things go, the, the data it doesn't come from placebo-controlled, uh, randomized, double-blinded, you know, gold standard evidence. Um, we don't have that kind of data, so that but we do have a number of very large observational trials, really large, designed to treat lots and lots of people with plasma. Given the assumption that it can't hurt, uh, really doesn't have any side effects. And since there was just no other option, um, they gave it to something like ninety thousand people throughout the country, uh, very sick people. And the protect the, the the benefit, which seemed to be pretty substantial. Um, the way they do this is they compare high plasma, uh, high antibody counts in plasma to very low and then to medium. And they, they look to, to see a directional effect. And that gives them, since they don't have a real control, um, there's nobody that they're comparing it to who well, got hold nothing. Adi, stop there for a second, yeah. because this is a very, very important point. First, yeah. you're saying there, there's no control, meaning there's, they're, they're not looking at a proper, randomized people into two conditions. Either you, you get some nothing or some placebo, or you get plasma. This is what you'd like to see. They're not doing that. So everybody's no. getting plasma and you're saying, well, they're going to take advantage of a variation that some people don't know, but the, the plasma donations from people who've had coronavirus come with different amount of antibodies. And so That's right. some people get relatively plasma, relatively rich in antibodies. Some get less rich in antibodies and you can observe the differences in the impact of this. This is the idea, right? And I, and I, I would say like that uh, the control does exist because there are people out there not getting this plasma yes, of course. That's treatment. Of course. It's just that the, there, there's no kind of easy way of building that kind of control into an analysis right. of the plasma data. Well, let's stay, with, let's stay with that for a second because the first reports that I saw were comparing people who got it at, at, at three days after being diagnosed with those who didn't get it or after four or something. something right. There were were a couple of variables. There was the amount of dosage and there was the timing of that dosage. And that's what they were comparing. And these, so these were all people that had tested positive and they were basically looking at the reduction of severe outcomes as a function of the timing. But this is one of the, this is one of the concerns with not doing the randomized treatment, because if you, are able to treat someone after three days versus someone after four days, there may be some reason that they're getting it after four instead of three. They're not the same. They're not, they're not the same population, essentially. 
Yep. Yeah, and, but, but this is but they do this because they need to get numbers up. Ultimately, they look at subgroups, people under 80 who were in the hospital, who were um, and, and we, you may have 90,000 people to start with. But by the time you limit it down, you, you, you were looking at smaller numbers. And in fact, death was the, the primary endpoint. And they were looking at death at two levels after 70 days or after 30 days. And even with the 90,000 group, you still don't have that many deaths. Um, but they did notice a, a pretty strong drop from low, medium to high antibodies from about 13% after seven days to about 11% to about seven or 8% um, as you get more and more antibodies. The death, the death rate at, say, seven days was lowering. Now, Adi, this, if it's the case that they get treatments of varying potency yeah. randomly, that starts feeling pretty good. That starts feeling like, what, what, why do we not like that as a, as a means of drawing inference? If it's true that the potency of the plasma is a random, is, is a random variable. Yeah, in fact, I couldn't find from the article itself, which I read um, you know, fairly briefly, but, but, but in its entirety, they were kept referring to the paper as a non-randomized study, but they didn't talk about like when they knew the antibody levels in the plasma. I believe they knew it before they, they, they um, provided it, but, and that's the problem. You could, you could blind the amount of antibody to, any, to the assessments I and let that. them go out randomly, and then you got yourself a pretty good randomized study. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So one, I remember from a few weeks ago when the first plasma study came out, there was concern. In fact, they stopped it. I think it was going on in Britain and they stopped the trial because they weren't seeing results that were strong enough. And one of the interpretations was you have to get the antibodies to the patients so early or else there's no benefit because their body starts generating antibodies. And so that's the problem. It's hard, yeah. it's hard to identify them and get them treated early enough to have an impact. Yeah, maybe just to build on your point, Kate, a couple things. One is, and Adi's earlier point, which is, um, is this study potentially informative about the entire population? No. Is this study potentially informative about a subgroup of the population? Yes, under a subgroup of conditions. And that's important. In other words, my guess is the body of evidence, even if they did a randomized trial, let's be clear, even the trials that are phase three, Moderna, you know, Pfizer, et cetera, they don't have enough people to draw conclusive evidence about every age population, every subgroup, every level of severity. So my guess is what's going to have to happen after the fact, after we see lots of these different studies, some more randomized than others, is someone's going to have to meta-analyze all of these studies and yeah. say, what do we know about these heterogeneous effects for certain populations at certain points in time at certain levels of dosage? Because those seem to be mm -hmm. very important factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to 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 just square the circle about the controversy, though, that we had. Um, so the point, the bottom line is, is that, and this is what makes it tough. This is a subset, very subset, uh, small subset of the of the potential kinds of people who might get infected. And within this group, there was approximately a 30, 35 percent reduction in mortality rates um, yes. when you compare the highest to the lowest, right? Of the so you take the biggest extreme the highest antibody to the lowest antibody. And then you only look at seven day mortality and then you do, you pull all the other factors um, and, and average those out. So the problem, the basic problem is, is that most people um, aren't going to die anyway. So you're looking at a, a small group of people who are, who are going to die. And that, that percentage is down by that small percentage is down by 35%. If you, uh, if you had the highest level compared to the lowest level. Now, well, let's let be clear here. This is not anything, don't you know saving lives is saving lives yeah that doesn't sound so bad to me first pass no, no, right but it's not 35 out of 100 there was this uh, one of the the fda administrators said uh 100 people cases uh 35 will, will, will survive that that's not true what he what he should have said is 100 deaths from the low group which would have taken in huge numbers of people um that would be down by by 35 yeah this was the big this was the big statistical controversy this yeah. is what uh both dr fauci and other people on TV have criticized Han, Dr. Han for, which is that he seemed to have confused marginal and conditional probabilities. And that, um, and also as Adi pointed out, you know, um, when the base rate is really low, um, a small, you know, a 35% reduction of a death rate from let's say one half of 1% to now 
0.38 of 1%, you know, it just takes, a, first of all, you have low statistical power. I said this last week. This is what we find all the time in like click-through rate studies. People click through on ads very low. You need millions of ads to identify effect sizes at that. That's number one. But number two, it's, as Adi said, it really is this confusion of marginal versus conditional probabilities. Yeah, and worse, I mean, not to, not to I mean, it's still a hopeful, hopeful drug, but I don't want to completely kill it. But they looked at seven-day mortality, right? So just because the seven-day mortality could be statistically significant and practically important and effect size, uh, different amount that we care about, doesn't mean that the the you know the infinity mortality i guess that's always always 100% uh, i mean you know the <laughs> <laughs> i mean like the two months uh you know uh, you know whatever it is uh you know the, the resolution of the case mortality might actually not even be different with that uh seven day thing i mean there i guess there's an implicit assumption that mortality is kind of like that whatever gains are kind of monotonic that you're not going to see somehow this this particular treatment you know yeah. swinging back up and causing yeah. greater mortality later on but no, it's no, assumption. Yeah, but it, could be, it, it could be like, you know, what we, it, it could be that um, it's, it's monotonic, but it just, you know, one gives you the big bump early on and then flattens more than the other one. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I hate, to, I hate to use the analogy, but, you know, it's the tortoise and the hare. Maybe one's the hare and the other one's the tortoise. And yeah. over the two month period, the tortoise wins the race, not the one that reduces it the most over the short period of time. It just reminds you know in research so often that the if you don't know which of two ways to do things, the answer almost always is to do them both ways. And so here's a seven day window. Let's let's look at the fourteen. Let's look at the twenty eight, um, just to get a little bit more robust understanding of what they've done. So let's or what take the impact is. let's take also a big picture look at this. Does this not concern everyone? And therefore, when a vaccine is released and supposedly approved by the FDA. This is the more, I don't call it political, but the more, you know, statistical issue. Should people have less confidence in whatever vaccine comes out? Because if the head of the FDA is making a statistical mistake and is claiming something that may not be there um, in the general population, what should we as consumers of this potential vaccine be thinking when evidence is presented to us in the future? I think it's a, it's a great question. I, I don't put it so much on Han and that statement. I think it's a massive gaffe. And he even, he, even, he even said something like, I'm a doctor, I know, and then said this thing. So it definitely reduces my regard for his opinion. But, you know, we know he's not the one making the decision. Oh, he apologized. Which, which things he, are approved. He, he's a he minute on Twitter, he screwed it up. Yeah, but so, but 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 that's a that's a big mistake for a guy in that position on this kind of study. But he's not the one making the decisions. I'm more concerned about the fact that they're reading a lot into this study and they're rushing it out and with great fanfare, probably more fanfare than it deserves, given the the design of the study. That concerns me, and it does feel a little political. You know governments, it always has been the case, governments in times of crisis want to get credit for what they're doing. And that's fine as long as it doesn't change policy decisions. But if it, but if they start, if it starts interrupting policy, then it's a different matter. Maybe just one quick thing also is, um, I know this sounds strange, but now the number 35%, this is another concern from a statistical perspective, the number 35% might be in someone's head. But as Adi pointed out, this was a self-selected sample that wasn't randomized, that was the largest difference. Imagine tomorrow, uh, Dr. Jensen comes out with something that uniformly reduces mortality by 15%. Imagine the layperson saying, what, that's it? It's only 15%? Yeah, well, this other thing was 35%. And so right. one person's comparing a restricted conditional probability to a marginal probability, and that also concerns me. Yeah, yeah and I think that I, and I'm, I'm kind of with Kate on this. I mean, I share these kind of concerns, but I think, you know, to a certain extent, the marketing of that, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I have an even greater concern about the kind of political marketing of all of these things, basically, over the next, you know, year or so that like, I think, you know, the government has a, a, a an interest in making things seem, you know, making news seem fairly positive. And, you know, I, I think, you know, that that in itself has eroded public trust in, in kind of scientific statements from the government and, yeah. you know, big gaffes like this further erode public trust. 
Well, it reminds me of the CDC's no mask thing or masks don't make a difference back in the beginning of the year. They, they apparently did this because they didn't want to run on a mask when healthcare workers needed it, which fine to have that motivation, but just, com just completely distorted the facts and therefore undermined their credibility. And they needed that credibility a few months later, badly. And so to the extent that this, people just code this, oh, government doesn't know, these stats don't mean anything, that's really bad for future decisions. Yeah, it's very damaging. In, in, um, well, compliance. Well, we're, in, we're sitting, I mean, everything, almost every act, act, action that people take is filtered through their, through their political convictions and their locality, their neighborhood. Um, we've been seeing this throughout. I mean, we, I was at a wedding. My, my nephew uh, got married on Sunday, very, very small wedding, 30 people outdoors. Um, and someone called the police on, on us. Oh, really? And the, wow. cops, the cops came over and he said, the person complained isn't here. And he said, it sounds like you guys are doing everything right. You guys are complying with the law. It's a small group. You're outside. Everyone right. wearing masks. Have a great wedding. I had to come anyway. But, but it's, uh, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a certain, and there's individuals who want to just abandon everything. And there are people who are, who think that, that, that from take the complete opposite view and, and are scared by everything. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the articles that, that one of you guys put up on the rundown about Germany and it's contact tracing. Um, and they're trying to, they had a concert where they, they, they did all these measures to try to see, you know, what kind of touching was done and what kind of transmission. I mean, what they're, what they're doing was remarkable in Germany, but one little, little data point ca came up throughout reading the article was Germany's average daily case rate is not any different than New Jersey's. And yet in New Jersey, they couldn't even contemplate having a, 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 a forget about tracing, they can't even con imagine that, but even having such an event. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, that German, German experiment is very exciting. I mean, America's doing kind of experimentation, <laughs> you know, just by the natural, the decentralization of decision-making right. in America. And like, you know, we're, we're seeing experimentation just by different states and different localities doing very different things. Germany decided to do a much more controlled version of that. Um, you know, just kind of trying to explore basically, you know, a lot of these kind of scientific issues that we puzzle about every week, like how much is there transmission between people in a closed space? How much is it, you know, like how much does the spacing matter, et cetera? So the, the, some of the details there were really interesting, and I would encourage anyone to go chase down that article because they were trying to do real science on this thing, and they ran, they it was a it was they ran an experiment. They ran different setups over the course of like a ten hour thing. They ran the concert three times, same audience three times in three different ways, and Great. they were tracing everybody. They had they had dye like things so they could see wh what what contact was made. They they were they were putting. Um, um, you know, smoke through there to see how the currents move, the air currents move. They were capturing all of this information. They're not going to have this process for another couple of months, probably. But it just was so encouraging to see people, let's run the good, rigorous scientific study on something that's going to matter to a lot of people. It's like, when can we come back together in public and have these big events? Yeah, I was the one that posted about that. I found, again, the, the multiple runnings really interesting. But maybe just to put a bow on the 35% topic, we talked about it for 20 minutes, by the way, and none of us actually, I didn't hear, maybe you guys used it. I don't hear any of us use the word standard error. Does anybody know what the standard error was around that 35%? Like, suppose I told you that the reduction was 35% plus or minus 30% or <laughs> plus or minus 60%. I'm just wondering... Um, I've not heard anybody, not, it's not even just us, I've not heard anybody on TV in any article talk about the uncertainty measurement in that. Do we have any idea how certain that 35% is? I don't, but I do know that it was a very well-powered study, right? It was kind of a surprisingly well-powered story. It's one of the few things they had going for them since they didn't have randomized control. They had a lot of subjects. Now, that doesn't mean a lot of deaths, but um, presumably that the, the, the people who, that, that, the estimate on the folks who didn't die is going to be pretty precise given the volume. I mean, it was tens, it was tens of thousands, wasn't it? Or am I making that up? Or was it just a thousand? Uh, well, again, I, I don't know how many were in the study. I just thought it was interesting that we haven't, you know, be, maybe we shouldn't be overly concerned about the standard error of measurement of it, but that was just something that just struck me. I haven't heard anybody talk about the uncertainty with which that estimate is made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, any, anything else around the world of coronavirus have your attention right now or that you're especially concerned about? 
there's a new article out of the Washington Post on on the spreading that happened out of that um, that that conference in Boston that everyone knew was one of the first big group events that led to everything back in March. But turns out there was a genetic um, there was a genetic marker of the strain that those guys had that has allowed them to trace that particular event downstream. And it's remarkable that one, just scientifically, that they can do such a thing, but then the number of people that were affected downstream because of this one event is, is unbelievable. And it, 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 we talk about this all the time, but we don't have these, these hard, concrete examples of how, how big the downstream consequences can be. But this study does capture those concrete examples. Yeah, I, I was, one thing that was really curious and interesting about it was they were able to recognize that um, the strain came from Europe and it was one of many strains that had come in from Europe. Most of them died out. This one exploded, which just shows, serves to show the importance of these super spreader kind of events. It, it's, it, it's remarkable. Most, most interactions don't end up in large spreads or in many spreads at all. It's, right. it's quite uh, long-tailed. Um, yeah, right. And, and in fact, I, I was reading some articles about, uh, about different treatments to see whether they could stop um, actual infection at all or symptoms at all. And what they were finding is that only one out of 10 people who have a, a lengthy conversation with an infected person, these were going back to March and April, um, where we didn't have masks and we didn't, protocols weren't quite in place, were actually getting infected. So mm -hmm. it's almost as if usually you don't get it except in certain circumstances where yeah. boom, it explodes like crazy. Um, and we tend, to, we tend to have in our mind most of those events. I, I feel like um, there was a, an early super spreader event in a, in a church um, where a choral practice was going on, right. Right. And, and which everybody remembers. And somehow that has led to the absolute ending of singing in public because of that <laughs> one event that people, you know, because it happened to have well, been... You know, to, I'm like, well, why be, not biology conferences? <laughs> but to be fair, I mean, to be fair, this thing is poorly understood, yeah. um, highly nuanced, and we're talking about here's another dimension of, um, of nuance. It's like, okay, not every conversation under the exact same conditions yields the same result. That's a lot of gray to keep in mind, mm -hmm. and it's tough, it's tough for people who traffic in gray, and most people don't traffic in gray. So to be fair, it's, I mean, it's a little rough. Yeah. <laughs> how, how difficult, just building on what you're saying, Kate, how difficult do we think it's going to be before we get a vaccine that's highly effective, no matter how much we're learning and the rate at which we're learning, to provide, I'll call them simple heuristic decision rules that people can use? Because as we've just heard, people say, oh, singing's no good. Okay, well, maybe that's not as true. Oh, you can't be in these kinds of crowds. Well, maybe that's not true. Oh, six feet apart is enough. Well, so in other words, maybe the problem is this is complicated. I'm just using your words, Kate. Maybe this is so complicated that kind of a simple five bullet point checklist and check all okay. these things off and yeah. you'll be fine. Maybe that's I not actually okay. I don't know. I, I mean, how much can we handle? And so I think we have settled onto a pretty pretty short list of heuristic behaviors that is not perfect, but it's quite good. So what are they? They are wear a mask. They are social distance, six foot, wear a mask, six foot, and ideally outside. And wash and, your and hands and wash your hands. Wash your, but even washing hands gets a lot less play than it used to, right? Because we're so sure that it's aerosol and not. Yeah. And I mean, we, and, and, and wa washing our hands is down from washing our groceries and washing all our clothes the second we stepped outside and all that <laughs> stuff. I mean, that, even that heuristic has evolved. I mean, consider how much more comfortable you are now walking into a store with a mask on, they have a mask on, and you have an exchange, and you buy mm -hmm. something, and you walk out, and you're not really worried about it. And I consider how comfortable you are having a conversation outside, even without a mask, because, you know, six foot, of, six foot across, a little bit of a breeze. I'll talk with anybody. But don't you want to know? Actually worried about. I wish we had this data. I mean, you can always dream about data you'll never get, but don't you wish you knew of the people that test positive, how many of them are following these guidelines and still getting it anyway? I mean, that's the magic yeah, number we wish yeah. we had. And even in yeah. a controlled experiment where like, oh, mask is much more explaining the variants. 
than distancing or than washing of the hands. I mean, it would be great to have that data. And, and there is some I, hope that something like, you know, this German experiment at the concert can provide a little bit more scientific data on some aspect of these behaviors, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, is that it would be great to have some uniform standards. Um, it would be nice. I think we got our, we got called on, uh, called, uh, the police were, was called because we were outside and there's a huge variation on people's attitude towards what it means to be outside vis-a-vis masks. And part of that is, uh, is local variation in, in law. Um, sure. So I'd love to see that kind of get standardized and, and, and have a common consensus. Mm-hmm. Well, well, we'll get consensus about the time that immunization is available. It's not real. Yeah. Oh, consensus is an American specialty. No worries, guys. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have another half to go. We'll dig deeper into the actual sports side of things. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Special one-hour edition virtually coming to you via Zoom. Got the whole crew. We're distanced, but we're, 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 we're complete. Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. This is Cade Massey. We do this every week, of course. You guys can reach out to us at W Moneyball is our Twitter handle. Probably the best way to get us, send us questions, complaints, whatever you got, at W Moneyball. We can't take your calls live because we're taping, but we're very happy to hear from you. Twitter, at W Moneyball. We have uh, a half hour to go talking sports. I saw that the Chiefs had a fans practice. I mean, no one really gets to watch football anymore these days, and they had some fans, 2,000 or something, distance, mask. How'd y'all feel about this? Do you think this is, uh, is okay? Is there a limit to how many people we can do like this? What, what, how should we feel about them having fans? I think it's great if it's an outdoor stadium and uh, you can space out the fans and do it in an orderly way. I mean, we're not in Germany, so maybe not quite that orderly, but uh, I'd love to see it tried. What, what is that? This six-foot you know, recommended distance, is that appropriate for outdoors as well? Is it less important outdoors? How, how do we really feel about the six-foot thing? Is that, is that legit? I mean, I think six foot is extremely legit, um, particularly outdoors, because the aerosol concentration just gathers in front of your face. And in outdoors, it blows away pretty quickly. So if you're, you need to be right on top of someone to be at risk. Okay. Once you're six feet away in an outdoor space with circulation, you probably don't even need a mask, although I, I've okay. said it wouldn't hurt. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm only cautious about, I mean, I agree once they're in the stands, they're all sitting six feet apart. I think that's a pretty safe thing. It's just, we've all, all of us have been to sporting events. There's a lot of kind of bottlenecks in stadiums, yeah. getting to the stands, going to the bathroom, et cetera. I just, I don't know if that, you know, that kind of, you're able to maintain those distances. You're going to have a lot of, I think, more kind of high risk exposure points through that operation then, yep. you know, and, and judging sort of the, you know, the, the spacing by once they're in their seats is kind of hiding a lot of these kind of other exposure, you know, kind of pro- events that could happen. Yep. I also yep. just want to just, well, as you said, we can't necessarily have Germany. I'm hoping that this 2000 fan event doesn't go without some form of data collection as to tracking oh, yeah, these individuals yeah maybe where they were sitting, how close, how close were they to whom. I'm just hoping that some form of data can be gained mm-hmm. from this. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, had, we did have major outdoor protests in June, which doesn't seem to have led to any, um, any, right. kind, of, uh, any kind of breakouts of any kind. And, and it's funny because we were talking about it. So we, were, we were, just came back from a family vacation and, and – um, one of the family members said, but everybody was wearing masks. And my, my 14-year-old younger cousin who lives in Brooklyn, right on, the, the, uh, right on one of the major arteries through Brooklyn where the protests were coming, he said, they weren't wearing masks. That's just garbage. But they were outside and they were distanced. And I think, okay. I think and if you, getting back to it, I think it's really important that we try to gain some, not only economic activity, but also some semblance of, of it's not normalcy, but of normal activity as best as we can. And um, I think the differences, the risks are quite minimal, the differences that we're talking about, and the gain is quite large. All right. Well, um, on the football front, we had this interesting event in the last few days of a a spate of uh, false positives among NFL players. Is that right? So they had a a number of positives that they retested. Do you all know the details on this? 
Well, it was 77. It was 77. It was all out of the same lab in New Jersey, which I think affected, which is shared by several of the kind of Northeast teams. I know uh, okay. Patriots at least, I think the Jets, et cetera. Like several teams had to at least delay or suspend practices because of the kind of the positives that came out as a result of these tests. And then they retested and they turned out to be all false positives. They only, not only that, but I just skimmed the article quickly while you were talking, Shane. They not only retested those samples, but they gave them a second additional test, all 77 of those people. So now they have not only the testing of that test, but also an additional test on all of those people. What, what do you guys make of those numbers? I mean, as statisticians, what is your inference about the test or the testing process or the lab? Well, I mean, I can see is the, the, the PCR tests can go wrong only because of lab error, human error. Contamination is the only way to have a false positive. This is not a um, other tests can have more, if you will, random uh, false positives. These have to be attributed to error. The, the question is, is how frequent is it? And, um, I, you know, one of my friends who's a statistician in New York, he did an interesting analysis. He claims that, that, that um, given the diversity of population, um, that you, he estimates it at about a half of a percent, um, which seems a little high to me. Um, I would have guessed it's closer to a, t- a 0.1 or one-tenth of 1%. But nevertheless, that's not zero. And no, in places where, where no, you but- have very low, low frequencies, you're going you're gonna to have more positive tests than true positives. No, but Cade's asking, that, I mean, there's no way, I mean, there's no way under any reasonable degree of error rate that 77 independent tests no, that's, 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 that's right, they clearly weren't done independently. No, that's, yeah, that's, that's contamination. But, but right. football, NFL football players have the luxury of getting a, a second test. And, you know, because, uh, and that can clear it up. Although Juan Soto from the, the Nationals, he, he tested positive and, and he claimed he did a bunch of rapid tests. were all negative. He never had a symptom. He claimed that it was a false positive. And he still got, he was forced into a seven-day or a 10-day quarantine. Well, that's a shame. They, they should have, there should be standard protocol. As long as we're going to make special circumstances for special uh, uh, um, regulations for, the play, for players and athletes, we should give them the second test. I mean, you're taking them out of competition, which is the whole point. So give them the second test, given there's going to be some false positives and you'll, you'll bounce a lot of guys back in. On the football front, College football is certainly getting interesting, guys, because increasingly it looks like schools are going to have trouble opening. We've had UNC, you know, open and then back off of that. We had Notre Dame open and then suspend for two weeks. Something like 500 Dame, students at University of Alabama, I think, just tested uh, Is that right? I didn't see that. Yeah. So Off campus. It, it, it mostly <laughs> – n- most people aren't surprised by this and a lot of schools didn't even try as a result but if this is typical and I think we have every reason to believe it is a lot of schools are going to have a hard time staying normal keeping their students on campus and if that's the case it's going to raise this philosophical question about do you keep the football players on campus and playing football and we don't know the teams colleges aren't reporting their testing results but it seems it seems that a lot of schools are having some success keeping their players healthy and so it raises and some people have even said hey if the rest of the students go home then we've basically got a bubble we've got a bubble we've seen that work in other sports maybe we can make it here there is this philosophical question and it really becomes it's not as much a health question it really is kind of a philosophical question um and it's really interesting and it's gonna and it's happening it's, the conversations are starting and they're going to continue and they're going to get more pointed the more campuses go virtual only and it's, it's interesting because I think it looks increasingly like teams can keep their players sufficiently healthy to actually have a viable team on the field. That's increasingly seems possible. And it's, un, it's increasingly possible that campuses can't stay open. And so how do those two things live together? Looming over all of it, of course, is, you know, $100 million per school, um, all the passions of the local fan bases. And here's a reality. Most of these players want to play. They want to play. Most of them feel safe. Most of them probably objectively are safer in that program, in that athlete's dorm, eating with the athletes only. That's probably the safest environment they can be in. Now, look, I'm saying this as a college football fan, so I don't entirely trust my judgment here, but it is not obvious which way to go here, even if it feels from a distance, at least first superficially, wrong in some sense. 
Well, I can tell you, Kate, uh, coming from a pr- perspective of not a college football uh, um, raving lunatic fan, um, I'll tell you <laughs> hey, that I agree hey, with hey, you. Hey. <laughs> I, I would I agree with you. I think it's exactly right. I've also been tracking these schools, the schools that have had 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 cases and outbreaks. Um, I, I shouldn't say I, I know them all, but what I've read is is mostly they're happening at big off campus parties. That's where they're coming from. Um, the schools themselves, the classes, if they're having them, the the dorms that where they can where they can be much more rigorously enforced. Um, I mean, so uh, Alabama, I think USC noticed a whole lot of stuff out off campus. Yeah. yeah, so well, I, I have a go ahead, Eric. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, I have two comments. Uh, one, uh, agree with Adi when I disagree. Um, one's just first a comment, which is, who are you protecting here? So, the, to me, the issue isn't about protecting maybe the 18 to 22 year old student because the, the mortality rate, at least, of them, at least in the short run that we see, appears to be very low. But are we okay with them infecting the coaches? Are we in, okay with them infecting the staff? Are we okay with them infecting their parents uh, when they go home? Are we okay with them infecting fans? And so to me, you have to look at it more broadly than just the students themselves. And secondly, I don't, um, I don't alleviate or uh, remove the blame from universities if they bring lots of young people together and says, well, those were off-campus parties. Therefore, what did we have right. to do with it? That to me, right. I understand that's an ethical issue. We're a sports show. But to me, I don't absolve universities from blame for off-campus parties when you bring 50,000 young people together. Yeah. And, and I mean, I'll just sort of, I'll reinforce that by just, I mean, I, yeah, the off-campus campus parties are even hard to regulate, but they're not, I mean, these students got, if these students are all going to be in dorms there, it's not going to be a particularly easy enterprise to regulate as well. I mean, you know, I, I will be shocked if there aren't outbreaks like in, in kind of dorm sort of situations on campus as well. Well, I'll give you a secondhand report from a, 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 a school that will go unnamed a large public university in the South speaking with a friend of mine whose child is a, is an undergraduate there. He reported that everybody has coronavirus and nobody's getting tested. Everybody has it and they don't want to get tested because they don't want the numbers to go up because they don't want school to shut down or the, or the football program to get shut down. And um, the, for my first thought on that was how quickly could we reach some kind of breaking point? It's not this necessarily herd immunity thing, but a breaking point. We've talked about the breaking point being as low as 20%. And if it's true that they're being quite that reckless and they're just kind of accepting it at some level. It seems plausible to me that the, that the population of undergrads could actually reach that breaking point pretty quickly. And maybe that's not, maybe, I mean, I don't know. In that population, there's probably relatively low risk and they could move on. We've had this argument for about states and, and, and nations and cities. And maybe we haven't had it at the school level. I, I, I don't know how I feel about it, but it seems if, if, if they're going to conduct themselves that way and campuses are going to stay open, then we may reach that point anyway, de facto. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I definitely agree with you. That um, is definitely a strategy. I mean, I, as I, I told you guys during the break, I dropped my daughter off in her new New York apartment, but it was also kind of a, a goodbye because she's going to now enter society in a way that she hasn't when she's been at home. Um, and she's still, she's still working virtually, so she's not exposing herself to anybody other than anyone else her age. And uh, she will probably not be exposing herself to me for some time. So <laughs> let's, speaking of New York, we got, we got tennis coming up. I know Eric's been worked up about Djokovic. He doesn't want to give Djokovic any credit for the U.S. Open title that he's already giving him credit for winning. So, okay, we've <laughs> talked about the U.S. Open. That's done. Um, what, what, what else, what else do we need to have a Dustin Johnson won by 11 strokes? How often does someone win a professional golf tournament by 11 strokes? I mean, everyone thinks about Tiger or Pebble by 10. Of course, that was a major, but I mean, I looked at this scores, 11 strokes. How does that happen? Yeah, that's, that's not happened. No, it's every other year. Maybe. No, not even that often. It's extraordinarily rare to be, remember, I mean, this is, as you said, winning by 11 strokes. That's, I mean, it just, I, I think it's only happened a couple times. Obviously, Tiger winning okay. the U.S. Open by 12. I think Phil Mickelson won a tournament by 13 strokes maybe 20 years ago or something. Okay. It's that rare. Um, the part I was actually interested in wasn't so much that Dustin Johnson wins, but for every extra tournament he wins that's not a major, 
you could make an argument his career looks less impressive in some dimensions. So and so wait, wait, yeah, winning is, is less impressive? I don't understand. Well, I'm going to say why. <laughs> because I'm going to say why. Because the criticism, the, the criticism of him is that he can't win the big one. So now he's up to 23 tournament wins with only one major, which, and also he's been number one on the world many times. He should have more than one major. And actually, if you remember a couple of weeks ago at the PGA, that's what Brooks Kepka called Dustin Johnson out for. He said, wow, I'm, the last guy I'm worried about is Dustin Johnson. The guy's got a lot of wins, but apparently he can't win the big one. Okay, so that's some that's that's can, can you that's, uh, that's not on. the that's not the best comment. I, I don't want to reify that comment. I, I just want to can can I can I ask you a, a technical question? Twenty three yeah. um, to one, or what is the ratio of of, of uh, non majors to majors? Uh, how many tournaments are there? Yeah, I just want to give me a sense. Say, if you're if you're a random winner, what fraction of your victories? Seven or eight to one. There's about thirty tournaments a year, and. Um, four majors so roughly on the pga tour so roughly you know, so, you know. We, i don't think we can rule out the null hypothesis is he's just a random winner well right i mean what what audie what you're getting at is if you did like yeah. a hypo you know test of proportions his proportion his winning percentage in majors versus winning percentage in the right would that even be a significant difference or not? I, I would say no Close. That's, so this is one thing I love about Audi, and I've seen him do it in far more serious applications than this, but to bring a very simple, clarifying way to look at things, and that's fair, but we can also look in much more detail, which Audi knows, he just, it's just not a sport, but you can, you know, you can imagine building a model that just says, as Eric said this thing earlier, he should have won more by now. It's not a moral judgment Eric's making. He's saying probabilistically, given how good he is, how competitive he has been in majors, if you just run those models you know so it's based on his quality and his and, and his stroke like where he is on the leaderboard given those things probabilistically he should have won more by now mm -hmm. yeah i mean the ratio right now is 22 to 1 on non-major wins to major wins and his tournament play is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six to one or seven to one so he's got a win rate that's a third as much and so um, that's probably, by the way, it's probably, as Adi's pointing out, it's probably true for most players because yeah, it's it has to be. fields all the Yeah, the most elite competition yeah, yeah. is the ones you're going to, and hardest courses you're going to face in the majors, at least some of them. But either way, I thought that was interesting. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about just quickly in golf is, you know, I watched obviously every shot of Tiger Woods in this last tournament. He's playing again this weekend. And he shot okay. But then I started to wonder, like, how much is the variance in golf? Like, you know, how much is the variance in any given round? And so I, I use the classic approximation. Probably your worst score to best score as a golfer is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 strokes. You know, the classic thing is if you, if you want to estimate the standard deviation, you take the range and you divide it by six. And so if you think about the standard deviation of a golf score, therefore being about one and a half or two, um, then all of a sudden you start to think to yourself, you know, if he's two strokes worse in a given round, that doesn't seem to be a big deal. So I was just trying to get a sense of the variability right. in golf scores. Right. And I think the standard deviation probably is somewhere around two strokes on a given round. Okay. I so, guess I would just clarify how many people in a tournament? There's it, on various, the general tournaments is about 125 um, in the majors, it's somewhere between 90 and 100. And for these tournaments, we've talked about the FedEx Cup. It was 125 last week. It's 70 this week and then the top 30 next week. So I want to hear a little bit from you guys on the other sports. We're, we're, we're nibbling at the edges. We've got three major sports underway, two of them in the playoffs. And our local boys just got swept by the Celtics and the coach got canned. Good uh. Lord, Eric. You're, you have a new coach for the first time in seven or eight years. You're a season ticket holder. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good about it. Um, you know, I think there's you know there's a lot of Brett Brown. A lot of coaches are very good coaches on building, and he's done a great job of getting us from the bottom team in the process to being a legitimate playoff team. But some coaches are better at actually getting you from being a playoff team to actually a winning team. And I think most of us would say two things are wrong. One is his substitution patterns and combinations on the floor, not great. And I think, but also I think a lot of people blame 
Elton Brand and the contracts, like why does Al Horford have a four-year, $109 million mm-hmm. contract? Why does Tobias mm-hmm. Harris have a five-year, basically $160 million contract? I mean, we understand why Simmons and Embiid have big contracts, but by the way, Horford and Harris both make more than Embiid and Simmons, and their contracts are guaranteed for the next four or five years. So that's the problem. We have four $30 million players, but we actually only have two players that actually deserve it. So now we're stuck with $60 million of salary. So the Sixers, we may see trust the process too pretty soon. Well, that, 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 it, uh, I like the fact that you spread it out from Brett Brown because um, – while I agree with your analysis of him, the, the management has a lot to speak of, speak for here. Um, more broadly in the playoffs, I have to say that uh, our friend and, and regular listener, Yuval Rotenstrike, has been on me about, we've got too much of this, there's no surprises in the playoffs, the NBA playoffs, it's too boring. And he thinks it's kind of a, an overdone narrative, which I think is fair because we definitely, we definitely trot that one out a lot. Um, what have you seen so far to fly in the face of that? So, Mavs Clippers, I guess. I mean, what, is that the one series in the eight that that is kind of exciting um, and a little bit unexpected? I think that's certainly one of them. That's two versus seven out west. I think Djokovic dropping forty three point seventeen rebounds and thirteen assists in a game where their second blessed player Porzingis uh, wasn't even playing, and he's got an injured ankle, and he hits a game winning twenty seven footer to uh, win the game. I would say that Dallas has overachieved. Um, <laughs> And you have to believe uh-huh. they're not far off from possibly being one of the top, top, top teams in the West. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the coming. second one is, look, I'm going to go to my deathbed and say, the guy you don't want finishing games is James Harden. I've seen him blow those last two games, and I've seen it his entire career. Uh, Luka Doncic, if I said Djokovic, although Djokovic is a great player too, I meant Doncic. <laughs> not, not basketball. <laughs> Doncic. Doncic, definitely the basketball player. Um, yeah. uh, James Harden is a big disappointment at the end of games. Just terrible. I'd so much rather have Chris Paul finishing games than James Harden. Yeah. And by the way, so they do have metrics now on clutchness and clutch scoring and you know effective field goal percentage when the difference is this much under this. And James Harden is not even in the top 25 players in the NBA. Yeah. So the Thunder tied that up. Um, they went to OT to, to, to avoid the 0-3 hole and then won the fourth game as well. And so – even though that's the four five, I think most people would be surprised if the Thunder managed to eat that thing out. But it's fun to pull for. Look, that team's not supposed to be doing what it's doing. Um, they've lost so much over the years. He's had a hard time keeping things together in Oklahoma City. Chris Paul's there, really helping things out. It's a fun team to hate to pull against Daryl, but come on, man, the Thunder like that small market business. Also, the um, other possibility is hockey. We talk about, just quickly for the Bachelors, one last thing. We talk about the Sixers doing wrong. Maybe maybe the Celtics are doing something right. And, you know, maybe they're actually better than we thought they were. And maybe they're going to give Toronto, who it appears they're going to play, a, a lot of trouble. That's a very interesting series. That's all I got to say. That's great. That's a great That's a great heads up on that. I mean, we're big fans of, of that. Or, that, that, that seems a, like a well-run organization, right, from top to bottom. Um, Great coach. They had a tough locker room last year. It's fun to see what they can do this year. Um, hockey, we're in the second round now. Yeah, and we've. I mean, I guess our kind of so quote unquote tired narrative is that hockey is already kind of less uh, is already more kind of random in the playoffs. And I think it's yeah. been relatively true to form this playoff time around as well. Um, you know, I mean, there was some big kind of surprises in the first round. The Capitals not making out of the first round. You know, right. they're only. Yeah, a couple seasons removed from their Stanley Cup championship was a real surprise. Um, the St. Louis Blues getting knocked out by Vancouver. You know, they're they're the defending Stanley Cup champions, and certainly during the season looked like they were going to be capable of a big, deep playoff run as well. And they're out as well, so that's interesting. I mean, they 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 of all teams looked like they never woke up in time for this restart. They just kind of came out flat and stayed flat, okay. especially on the goaltending side of things. Um, and for this upcoming, you know, for the sort of second round that's going on right now, I think, um, I mean, it's, we're only like a game or two into the series, but the the upset that's potentially brewing at least is that the Dallas Stars are already up um, two games to nothing on the Colorado Avalanche. And I mean that, you know, the, the Stars are like the three seed, this is a three seed beating up on the two seed. So it's not exactly the most shocking 
thing ever. But Colorado, at least in the first round, was looking like the world beaters. I mean, they would have been, if you just asked me at the end of the first round who, who was my pick to make it to the Stanley Cup, it would be Colorado. And to see them already right. down two games to nothing is kind of, you know, that's certainly a shock. Okay, so um, the, the, we've got a couple of other pretty big spread in the seeds. So we got two other yeah. chances to live up to your your long your long beaten drum yep. that yeah if you like upsets you should cheer for the islanders i'm not cheering for the islanders personally because they're playing the philadelphia flyers but uh yeah. but yeah the islanders are the sixth seed and they're already up one nothing on seven, the philadelphia flyers seven and they smoked them last night 4-0 and then out west you just mentioned vancouver you know the vegas are kind of the, the, the golden knights are kind of the golden children since they reached the since they got in the league they won in their first year but Vancouver's kind of an old school team to pull for, fun to pull yep. for. That's a seven versus one. They kicked off last night also, I think. That was even uglier, five nothing. So our our um that that's 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 that that upset watch is not quite as interesting as the one in the east. Um, fellas, we've just got a couple of minutes and you know, I hate to have kept you off of baseball for this one. I can't believe we've stayed off of baseball for this one. In the last couple of minutes, what has your attention in baseball? Well, I, I was uh, disheartened to watch the Yankees get swept by the Rays looking pretty awful with the team uh, decimated by injury. And in a short season, this is, this could be terribly destructive. Uh, but I think the Yankees will, will end up cruising in. You're seeing the Dodgers dominate. Houston is playing decently, even uh, though all Adam, their... you lost you just the wrong time. You want to jump in here? You got something? Can you hear me again? Or am I back or no? Okay. So yeah, I was just talking about the Astros seem to be doing well. And uh, even though their, their star hitters are not, the, um, there's, there's still continuing talk that, that they can't play without the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sign stealing. And I, I don't think that. it's got anything to do with sign stealing, but how from 2018, the Boston Red Sox were like the best team of the decade. Yeah. I mean, they won 108 games. They rolled through the playoffs in the least stressful way I've ever watched playoffs. And now that, I mean, they're like the worst team in baseball. It's incredible how far they've fallen, how quickly. Yep. Yeah. What about your Yankees? Uh, so the Yankees are doing well. They got swept by the Rays, but um, and they have a lot of injuries. I don't know if that came through when I tried to explain it last time. Um, but uh, you know, they they, they missed a series because of Corona, and uh, this kind of chugged along. I think we're. I think baseball. Just quickly, I think baseball is now gotten to how much. Given how many teams are letting in the playoffs, I think the Yankees recognize they don't want to be in a play-in series, but they can go on cruise control and they will be fine. Just get healthy by the time the the playoffs start. They're almost in right now, basically. So, real quickly, last minute here, or really should be wrapping up. But I'm curious. This time in a regular season, we'd start really thinking about the playoff run. You'd have about a month, a month of baseball left. How much do we have left, and what does it feel like? Well, it's 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 playoff run and mid-season at the same time. It's very awkward and odd yeah. feeling because it really is a playoff run at this point. Yet the teams are just getting their bearings, um, and uh, it's 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 uneasy. It's a kind of a weird 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 feeling. All right. Well, we'll do more baseball next time. Um, and, and now that we are entering the playoff run slash midseason, um, I'd be interested to hear the, the, the storylines that we have to follow in September as we get closer. All right, fellas, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week. One hour on sports analytics, a little bit of coronavirus and a little bit of sports analytics mixed together. We are going to do this again next time. For Maddie D, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, this is Kate Massey. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us in a week between now and